Part two, chapter four of the Merry-Go-Round by W. Somerset Maugham. This LibriVox recording is in public domain. Some days after the party at Lady Edward Stringer's, Bethel went to Brighton. It was met at the station by Jenny and her sister. Sending the traps by porter, they set out for the lodgings, but were quickly joined by a very smart young man, introduced to Bethel as Mr. Higgins, who paired up with Annie Bush. When they had gone ahead, Bustle asked who he was. "'He's Annie's latest,' answered Jenny, laughing. "'Have you known him long? "'We got to know him the second day we were down. "'I noticed him look at us, and I said to Annie, "'There you are, my dear. "'There's company for you when Bustle comes, "'because I can't stick walking three in a row.' "'Who introduced him to you? "'What a silly you are,' laughed Jenny. "'He just came up and said good evening, "'and Annie said good evening.' and then he began to talk he seems to have lots of money he took us to a concert last night to the best places it was nice of him wasn't it but my dear child you can't go about with people you don't know you must let annie enjoy herself and he's a very respectable young fellow isn't he you see living at home she hasn't the opportunity to get to know men that i had and he's quite a gentleman is he i shall have thought him a most awful bunder you so particular said jenny i don't see anything wrong in him arriving at the lodging-house annie engaged in lively conversation with her new acquaintance stopped till the others came up she resembled jenny as much as it was possible for a somewhat plain woman to resemble a beautiful she had the same graceful figure but her hair arranged with needless elaboration was colourless and her complexion had not the mellow delicacy which distinguished her elder jenny she cried you won't come in to tea because he says you want to be alone with your hubby tell him it's all right of course it's all right said jenny you come in and take a cup of tea with us and then we'll all go on the front he was evidently a facetious person for while basil washed he heard the two women in their joining room shout with uproarious merriment presently jenny called out that tea was ready and somewhat against his will he was forced to go in his wife much better in health talking and laughing loudly was in high spirits and the three had evidently enjoyed thoroughly the last two weeks for they were full of remembered jokes basil annoyed by the stranger's intrusion sought not to join in the conversation but sat silently and after a while took up a newspaper annie gave him an angry glance and mr higgins looked once or twice uncertainly but then went on with his rapid string of anecdote. Perhaps he also had cause for irritation, since his best stories were heard by Bustle with all the appearance of profound boredom. Well, who says a stroll on the parade? he cried at last. Come on, Jenny, answered Annie Bush, and turned to Bustle. Are you coming? He looked up from his paper indifferently. No, I have some letters to write jenny preferred to remain with her husband and once alone they talked for a time of domestic affairs but there seemed a sudden constraint between them and presently basil began to read when annie after some while came back she glanced at him aggressively better she asked what i thought you didn't seem well at tea thanks i'm in the best of health you might make yourself obliging then instead of sitting there like a funeral mute when i have a gentleman to visit me 
I'm sorry my behaviour doesn't meet with your approval, he answered quietly. Mr. Higgins say he won't come here till your husband's taken himself off, my dear. He says he knows where he is not wanted, and I don't blame him either. Oh, Annie, what nonsense, cried Mrs. Kent. Bertha was only tired. Yes, a journey to Brighton's very tiring, isn't it? I tell you straight, Basil, I expect my friends to be treated like gentlemen. You're an amiable creature, Annie, he answered, shrugging his shoulders. After supper, Annie waited somewhat impatiently till the servant came in to say that Mr. Higgins was at the door, then hurriedly put on her hat. Basil hesitated for one moment, unwilling to give offence, but decided that some word of warning was necessary. I say, Annie, do you think you ought to go out alone at night with a man you've picked up casually on the pier? What I do is no business of yours, is it? She answered angrily. I'd thank you to give me your advice when I ask for it. Shall we come with you, Annie? said her sister. Now don't you interfere. I can look after myself, as you know very well. She went out, vindictively slamming the door. And Basil, without another word, a frown on his brow, returned to his book. But in a little while he heard that Jenny was crying very quietly. Jenny, Jenny, what's the matter? he exclaimed. Oh, nothing, she answered, drying her eyes and doing her best to smile. Only you've been having such a good time down here. I only wanted you to make it perfect. I did look forward so to your coming, and now you've upset everything. I'm very sorry, he sighed, with complete discouragement. He did not know what to say or how to comfort her, for he realised, too, that his appearance had disturbed her enjoyment, and for all his good will, he appeared able to bring her only unhappiness. She was most herself in the company of such as Mr. Higgins. Her greatest pleasure was to walk on the parade, staring at the people, or to listen to nigger minstrels' sentimental ditties. She wanted gaiety and noise and garish colour. On the other hand, things which affected him painfully left her unmoved and she was perfectly content in the sordid, vulgar lodging which overwhelmed him with disgust. It seemed that he was in a labyrinth of cross-purposes, wherefrom was no issue. Next morning occurred a travelling incident, which showed Bethel how his wife regarded him. Annie, dressed for church, came downstairs in a costume which was positively outrageous, so that one wondered at the perverse ingenuity with which the colours were blended, and she wore much cheap finery. "'Well, my dear, you're never going out like that,' she cried, seeing that Jenny was no differently attired from the day before. An antipathy to Sunday clothes was to his wife one of Basil's most incomprehensible fats. "'Aren't you going to put on your new hat?' Mrs. Kent looked somewhat uneasily at her husband. I saw such a smart hat in the shop, Basil, and Annie simply made me buy it, and I must say it was dirt cheap, only six and eleven. This is evidently an occasion to put it on, he smiled. In a few minutes she came back, radiant and flushed. But Basil could not persuade himself that her headgear was cheap at the price. Do you like it? she asked anxiously. Very much, he replied, wishing to please. There, Jenny, Annie, who wouldn't mind, 
if you heard all the fuss she made about you being angry and not liking it and i don't know what all basil says i look best in black said jenny in self-defence men never know what's dressy my dear Annie answered if you went by what basil said you would be a doubt it was rather distressing to find that his wife still somewhat feared him in her eyes apparently he was a bearish creature whose whimsical fancies must be humoured and he thought bitterly of the confidence which he hoped would exist between them of the complete union in which not a thought nor an emotion should be unshared and knowing that his own love was long since dead basil sought to persuade himself that hers also was on the wing the weekend bored him immensely and it was not without relief that he found himself on monday morning at the station whither his wife accompanied him i'm awfully busy i don't know whether i can manage to come down next saturday he said tentatively but jenny's eyes filled on a sudden with tears oh basil basil i can't live without you i'd rather come up to town if you don't like annie she can go away promise me you'll come i look forward to it all the week you'll have a very good time without me i've only made you wretched by my visit no you haven't i want you so badly i'd rather be utterly unhappy with you than happy without promise me you'll come all right i will the chains that bound him were as fast as ever and as the train sped towards london his heart beat madly because each minute he drew nearer to hilda murray it was very plain now that he loved her passionately more than ever he had done and with violent rage he told himself that she was lost to him for always intoxicated by the ring of her voice by the sweep of her dress by the tender look in her eyes he repeated every word she had said at lady edward's on wednesday he was to die with miss ley and already he felt sick with hope at the thought of meeting hilda in the afternoon leaving chambers he went home by way of charles street and like a lover of eighteen looked up at her windows there were lights in the drawing-room so that he knew she was at home but he dared not go in mrs murray had not asked him to visit her and he could not tell whether she had no wish to see him or whether she sought a cause so obvious as to need no special invitation the windows seemed to beckon the very door offered a mute welcome but while he lingered someone came out mr farley and basil wondered angrily why he should go to that house so often at length with a desperate effort he walked away though basil went on wednesday to miss ley almost trembling with excitement he managed to ask gaily who was expected to dinner but his heart sank when she made no mention of mrs murray then he wondered how to pass the dreariness of that evening to which he had so enormously looked forward since the meeting at lady edward stringer's the passion hitherto dormant had blazed into such a vehement flame that he could scarcely bear himself it seemed impossible to live through the week without seeing hilda he could think of nothing else and foresaw with sheer horror his excursion on saturday to brighton of course it was madness and he knew well enough it was no use to see mrs murray again it would have been better if they had never met but the sound sense which he preached to himself seemed folly 
and his eagerness to see her overcame all prudence. He thought there could be no harm in speaking to her just once more, only once, after which he vowed entirely to forget her. The next day he walked again through Charles Street, and again saw the light in her windows. He hesitated, walking up and down. He could not tell if she wished any longer to know him, and feared horribly to discern on her face that he intruded, but at length, in sullen anger, decided to adventure. He could not love Hilda more if he saw her, and perhaps by some miracle the sight might console him, helping him to bear his captivity. He ran. Is Mrs. Murray at home? Yes, sir. She was reading when he entered the room, and with dismay Basil fancied that a very slight look of vexation crossed her eyes. It disconcerted him so that he could think of nothing to say. Then he imagined that his behaviour must astonish her, and asked himself whether she knew the cause of his sudden marriage. He listened to the polite or flippant things she said, and did his best to answer flittingly. But his words sounded so unnatural that he scarcely recognised his voice. Yet they laughed and jested as though neither had a care in the world. They spoke of Miss Ley and of Frank, of the place then to be seen in London, of one trivial topic after another, till Basil was forced to go. I came in fear and trembling, he said gaily, because you suddenly never asked me to call. I thought it wasn't needful, she answered, smiling, but she looked straight into his eyes with an odd air of defiance. Basil flushed, glancing at her quickly, for there seemed a double meaning in her words, and he knew not how to take them. He lost momentarily his urbane, courteous manner. I wanted so much to come and see you, he said, in a low voice, which he strove to keep firm. May I come again? Of course, she replied, but her tone was full of cold surprise, as though she wondered at his question and resented it. Suddenly, she found his eyes fixed upon her with such an expression of deadly anguish that she was troubled. His face was very white, and his lips twitched as though he sought to command himself. All through the night, she thought of that look of utter agony. He stared at her from the darkness, and she knew that if she needed revenge, the fates had given it. But she was not pleased. For the hundredth time, unable to get it out of her head, that he loved her still. She asked herself why he had married so strangely. But she would not inquire into her own feelings. She tightened her lips. Knowing well that he would come again, it was Mrs. Murray's impulse to tell the butler not to meet him. But something... She knew not what prevented her. She wished to observe once more the terrible wretchedness of his face. She wished to make sure that he was not happy in what seemed his cruel treachery. One afternoon of the following week, coming in from a drive, she found his card. She took it in her hand and turned it over. Shall I ask him to luncheon? With a frown of annoyance, she put it down. No. If he wants to see me, let him come again. Basil was bitterly disappointed that day when the servant said that Mrs. Murray was not at home, and at first determined that there he must leave it. He waited for a note, but none came. 
He waited for a week, able to do nothing but think of her, restless and preoccupied. With stricken conscience, he went to Brighton, and so far as possible avoided to be alone with Jenny. He took her to a play one night, to a concert the next, and insisted that Mr. Higgins, still faithful, should be constantly with them. But the whole thing disgusted him, and he felt utterly ashamed. Then he made it a practice every evening to take Charles Street on his way to Frank, and ever the windows appeared to invite him. When he looked back, the whole street beckoned, and at length he could resist no longer. He knew that Mrs. Murray was in. If the butler sent him away, it must be taken as definite, but it would mean that Hilda had given orders he was not to be admitted. This time better fortune was his, but when he saw her, the many things on the tip of his tongue seemed impossible of utterance, and it was an effort to speak commonplace. Mrs. Murray was disconcerted by the look of pain which darkened his face, and the constraint between them made conversation very difficult. Bethel did not prolong his visit, yet it was dreadfully hard to go leaving unspoken all that lay so heavily on his heart. Talk flagged, and presently silence fell upon them. "'When is your book to be published?' she asked. Oppressed, she knew not why. In a fortnight, I wanted to thank you for your help. Me? she cried, with surprise. What have I done? More than you know, I felt sometimes as if I were writing for you only. I judged of everything by what I thought would be your opinion of it. Mrs. Murray, somewhat embarrassed, did not answer. He looked away, as though forcing himself to speak, but nervous. You know, it seems to me as though everyone was surrounded by an invisible rain which cuts him off from the rest of the world. Each of us stands entirely alone, and each step one must judge for oneself. And none can help. Do you think so? she answered. If people only knew, they would be so ready to do anything they could. Perhaps, but they never know. The things about which it's possible to ask advice are so unimportant. There are other things in which life and death are at stake, about which a man can never say a word. Yet if he could, it would alter so much. He turned and faced her gravely. A man may have acted in a certain way, causing great pain to someone who was very dear to him. Yet if all the facts were known, that person might excuse and pardon mrs murray's heart began to beat and she had some difficulty in preserving the steadiness of her voice does it much matter in the end everyone resigns himself i think an onlooker who could see into human hearts would be dismayed to find how much wretchedness there is which men bear smiling we should all be very gentle to our fellows if we realized how dreadfully unhappy they were Again there was silence, but strangely enough, the barrier between them appeared suddenly to have fallen, and now, though neither spoke, there was no discomfort. Bertha got up. Goodbye, Mrs. Murray. I'm glad you let me come today. Why on earth shouldn't I? I was afraid your servant would say you weren't at home. 
he looked at her steadily as though meaning to say far more than was expressed in the words i shall always be very glad to see you she answered in a low voice thank you a look of deep gratitude softened away the pain on his face at that moment mrs barlow bassett was announced she shook hands with Basil somewhat coldly, thinking that a man who had married a barmaid could be no proper companion for her virtuous son, and she determined not to renew the old acquaintance. He went out. Do you know whom Mr. Kent married, and why? asked Mrs. Murray. The question had been often in her lips, but pride till this moment had ever prevented her from making an effort to clear up a difficulty which had long puzzled her my dear hilda don't you know it's a most shocking story i must say i was surprised to find him here but of course if you didn't know that explains it he got into trouble with some dreadfully low creature she's very beautiful i've seen her you cried mrs bassett with astonishment it seems there was going to be a baby and he was forced to marry mrs murray blushed to the roots of her hair and for one moment bitter anger blazed in her heart again she told herself that she hated and loathed him but remembering on a sudden the woe in his eyes knew it was no longer true do you think he's very unhappy he must be when a man marries beneath him he's always unhappy and i must say i think he deserves it i told my boy the whole story as a warning it just shows what comes of not having good principles. Mrs. Murray's eyes dwelled on the speaker absently, as though she thought of other things. Poor fellow, I'm afraid you're right. He is very unhappy. End of part two, chapter four.